Thank you for joining us and welcome to another edition of Answers Network. I'm your host, Alan Cardoza. And for those of you that have been listening, sending in questions and comments, thank you so much. And please continue to help spread the word that every Monday from 11 a.m. to noon Pacific time, this show will bring on special guests that can inspire, educate, and in some cases entertain while bringing answers and options to making our lives happier, healthier, and more successful. And I'd really appreciate if you could all do me a favor. Please forward one of our shows to your social media group and to someone you know who can benefit from a particular subject. This is one powerful way that we together can make a positive influence in the world. And if you're new to the show, we introduce you to talented authors and new innovations in the areas of health, happiness, and security while creating more joy for you and your loved ones. And for those looking for greater success in their personal and business life, we have a treat for you. Our guest, Dr. William R. Torbert, is the leadership professor emeritus at Boston College and serves on the boards of the Amera Collaboration and of Global Leadership Associates. Dr. Torbert received his BA and PhD from Yale University. He has consulted and served as a board member at dozens of companies and is the author of a dozen books, including the award-winning Managing the Corporate Dream, the award finalist, The Power of Balance, Transforming Self, Society, and Scientific Inquiry, and his latest book, Numskull, I'm going to find out about that. <laughs> Numbskull in the Theater of Inquiry, Transforming Self, Friends, Organizations, and Social Science, which is a very deliberately crafted memoir that he goes directly into his teaching roots, peppering in the issues of the day and how society can indeed awaken to the deeper meaning of itself, one individual at a time. And in this book, every facet of humanity from purpose and inquiry to play and love are touched on with as much thought as care. Now, he has received a number of recognitions for his life work, including the the Ulmer Applied Research Award from the Center of Creative Leadership in 2013 and the Arduous Lifetime Achievement Award from the Academy of Management in 2014. Bill, welcome to Answers Network. Thanks, Alan. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And well, all of you out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, first I have to ask, how did the word numbskull get into the title of the book? Well, um, you know, part of the reason for writing an autobiography, at least in my case, is to find out more about yourself, find out the truth about yourself. And um, of course, we all uh, want to have some kind of archetypal meaning to our lives. We'd like to think of ourselves as heroes and heroines most of the time, saving the situation. But after years and years of work and some success, as you as you pointed out, um, but also some, you know, sometimes I fell off the uh, balance beam uh, because I didn't know how to walk on the balance beam. Uh, and in fact, early in my life, um, as a Boy Scout, um, I thought it would be very helpful to the troop if I walked on a log across a creek to help them get some stuff. And I decided it would be more impressive if I kept my hands in my pockets while I did it. I didn't have to put them out to the sides. And 
Then when I got halfway through, my 12-year-old mind um, said, it'll be even more impressive because if you fall, that would be really embarrassing. So why don't you intentionally dive into the creek? And so I turned 90 degrees and dove into the creek. And there's a bump here that in some lights is very clear and some lights not. Um, which was the the result. I uh, luckily didn't kill myself, God knows. Um, And my three sons have liked to uh, mess around with me and rub the spot and um, call me a numbskull. And one time when they did that, uh, I was thinking, I I was writing the book and I thought, yeah, there have been a number of numbskullian experiences, not just physical ones, uh, but also emotional ones uh, with relationships with women going wrong, um, and intellectual ones where my graduate faculty for a time had me on the edge as to whether I deserve to continue or not. Fortunately, I got two books, not just one out of that experience, but it, it didn't look so great at the moment. So I realized that I am a kind of numbskull. I do things that are a little bit more daring and a little bit more unwise than usual, often they resulted in great learning. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's neither a terrifically positive archetype, nor in my, my view, a completely negative archetype. So uh, that's part of the lessons of having written the autobiography. All right. Well, you shared with us a little bit about 12-year-old Bill. Um, how about after that? Because, um, I mean, before we go into the benefits of the information that you brought together in this book, um, tell us about you and what led you to focus on leadership and transformation. Hmm. Well, um, um, I guess maybe I'll I pick up the story at the point where um, I was in Somalia at the age of 19 for the summer. And I was working for Sinclair Oil Company doing um, uh, oil exploration research. Uh, and I knew nothing about that. I was just um, brought on as a kind of intern uh, by this uh, Texas linebacker guy who really impressed me. And they had a number of Somalo helpers. There were about 70 or 80 people in the camp altogether. And my two bosses for the first three weeks Um, suddenly both were called to other uh, 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 chores away from the camp. And I was suddenly promoted to being leader of this group. I didn't even know how to speak with the Somalos. I spoke a little bit of Italian um, because we'd been uh, stationed in Rome before that. And the very first day that I was uh, leading the group, really just following the group and hoping nothing bad happened, we uh, reached a, a, a temporary village made of little tin huts and very poor people and so forth. And they got up in front and said, no, we were trying to go a straight line and the straight line went right through the village. And uh, that didn't feel good to me. It didn't feel good to them. Uh, and so uh, I gave up and went back to camp and told my Texas linebacker that what had happened. And he said, well, that's all right. But, you know, we really have to go through because um, the government's given us the okay to go through whatever temporary places there are. And, um, you know, we've got an obligation to to chart all this territory. So I went up early, got everybody up and out at 5 a.m. the next morning, hoping we'd get through the village kind of before anybody woke up. 
not at all. The entire village was there to greet us. Um, and, um, and I was brought to this elder who was, had no teeth, a very whiny voice. And basically he asked me like Socrates, do you think it's just to destroy our village um, just so that you can get, you know, another half mile plotted? And um, I didn't think it was just. But I was also scared as hell of what would happen if I didn't do this uh, from my uh, Texas linebacker guy. So I finally decided not to do it. We went beyond the village and continued. And I went back to the camp that night and was sure I, I couldn't face it for an hour or two. Finally went to him and said what had happened. And to my surprise, he said, oh, that's not really any problem, Bill. We'll have thousands of miles to to a chart and uh, it won't matter if we miss a mile, contrary to the tone of voice he had the previous night. Um, And so I was, first of all, of course, enormously relieved. But second of all, um, you know, realized that leadership had this quality to it that you suddenly had to take risks of various kinds uh, and uh, risks that you're, that, you know, your, your superior might not be close enough to the situation to know really what should be done. So um, that might be the beginning, but I, an, another beginning just to go on a little bit further, if that's okay, Please. Uh, is that I um, met a man named Chris Argerus, who, as you pointed out in your introduction, and I later won an award based on his name, uh, which was a wonderful thing for me because he was a very central teacher and he was a student of leadership and um, and a very special one because he was particularly concerned with the contradictions that occur constantly between what we say we value and what we actually do. Um, and that you know gap between theory and practice uh, that seemed terrifically important to me as a college student in the 1960s who didn't want to be engaged in um, um, uh, in, in hypocritical behavior and so forth. So that was the beginning of my learning, um, which later turned, t- took me to graduate school. What I wanted to learn was what kind of knowledge is relevant to being a good leader, is relevant to action in the moment. And um, that's really different knowledge from just theory and empirical uh, data. Uh, And I came to call it action inquiry. And I had the opportunity at 22 uh, to found the Yale Upward Bound program for students from backgrounds of poverty uh, who were always being thrown out of school uh, every Monday when they got there because the assistant principal for discipline knew they were going to be a problem sometime during the week and might as well get get rid of them quickly. And uh, most of them were expected to drop out of school uh, the next year when they became 16. And um, we took 60 of them for seven weeks in the summer and cut New Haven's dropout rate in half. Uh, Only three out of 60 actually dropped out the next year. And so that was the beginning of, of my work in this area. So you're talking now about uh, action inquiry, um, but how did it go from re- from like a research point to a practical application that you can that you can then put in your book and apply it to so many other aspects of life? Mm. 
Right. Well, that's a complex question that um, requires discussing every aspect of my life almost, but let's see see how I can start in on it. Um, uh, Well, one of the things that, that, um, that I quickly realized was that, um, you know, we didn't know how to deal with these kids. Nobody knew how to deal with them. Um, So instead of creating a very strong structure, which was most people advised, we said we're going to collaborate in the creation of the school itself with the students. And the first week of the first summer, we took all of ourselves out to a camp about an hour away from Yale. um, And we started to create a constitution for the school. Now, mind you, we couldn't even get the kids to sleep at night. Uh, They were rushing around, raiding one another's cabins. Um, But luckily, after two nights of that, everybody was so exhausted, they had to go to sleep. And in the meantime, we learned all their names and really formed some relationships as we ran around after them. Uh, And so uh, by the end of the week, we we did create a, a constitution, which included a discipline committee with 10 students and five faculty completely upside down compared to usual. Um, And um, so I began to learn how you can create a collaborative organization. And that's what I continued to work on when I went to SMU and had 400 student classes where we were supposed to teach them to be entrepreneurs. How do you, how do you take, how do you batch process 400 students into entrepreneurship, well, we figured out a way and we had, um, the course was extremely successful. Uh, uh, although the senior faculty were really upset about that. They had, they had wanted us to fail really badly and they didn't like the fact that we succeeded. Um, what, what now, why do you think they wanted you to fail? Well, um, there'd never been a good success with a large introductory course before. And, um, and in particular, when we started to run our course um, in a way where there were uh, student groups that were supported by a consultant, um, and there was a lot of freedom in the course, and you chose your own projects, and um, then we did research on the course of a traditional type, questionnaires, how did this class session go, how is the course going compared to your other courses, and um it turned out that they thought the course was going very well compared to other courses. And, um, uh, and a lot of the students were really excited by um, the opportunity to, to uh, work together and to be leaders in effect uh, within groups. Um, so, uh, but some of the older faculty had it in for the new Dean and um, uh, at one of our sessions uh, after one semester, I, I presented what we'd done again to the, to the whole faculty, which we did each semester. And one of the older senior faculty said, um, well, I don't believe any of what you, you're, you're talking about here. I talked to a student during the semester in your course, and he didn't seem to know exactly what was going on in the course and um, didn't think he was learning as much about business. He was learning about human relations and how to do better with other people, not business. Um, <laughs> and uh, I said, I, I responded, um, and this becomes a little bit more interesting when you realize that it had taken me years to learn how to have open conflict in a constructive way with people because my parents were diplomat. I didn't ever see uh, a, a conflict in my home 
while I was growing up. And so here I was at a moment of great tension, and I responded, uh, well, I don't see how I can possibly take your one person's data seriously when you refuse to take my 400 person data seriously. And then he said, um, well, that is a blindly antagonistic comment at which point the whole faculty burst into laughter because it was so obvious that it was he who was being blindly antagonistic. Exactly. And uh, I felt great. This is the best feedback I've ever received. I finally learned how to press a conflict to, to a point of getting an important, you know, sort of transformation. The faculty as a whole kind of came on board as a result of that, um, that exchange. So, you know, and, and, and I like that. And and I think that in a situation like that, a lot of the rest of the faculty probably recognize that the person that was being antagonistic uh, is somewhat of a bully because that's mm-hmm. kind of what bullies do is bullies try to to test people by trying to put them down in front of other people. And, and if you don't have some of the leadership skills that you're talking about and you're the new guy, a lot of times, you know, we, we were taught to kind of sit back then. Oh, well, you know, that's the person that's been here a lot. So uh, that probably helped the rest of the uh, faculty as much as it helped you. Yeah, I think I think that's true. And we had, in fact, there was a lot of that bullying quality to the senior faculty's uh, response. And they had even managed to get one of our team thrown out of the school earlier um, uh, because they thought he was a member of SDS um, and um, and the president of the university and the provost didn't support the faculty member. This is what's what's SDS. Uh, Right. Students for a democratic society. It was a, left-wing group in the late 60s and early 70s that, um, you know, got violent in that period of time. Uh, My friend was not violent. And um, but um, so there was a a a sense of um, it wasn't just this course, but the whole initiative that the dean was leading was was bullied at various points. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh yeah <laughs> well and and i think what you're describing is is a problem that we have today uh and not just at the the education level or at the corporate level but at the government level uh, you know that you know it's it's about wanting to keep this quo and wanting to keep their power and not will not being willing to to listen to other people that might have a an observation or, or a different way of doing things that could benefit everybody. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all the news about school board meetings being interrupted by, uh, and, and, and by people who come in and just shout everybody down. Um, uh, it is becoming very difficult to have a true conversation among people with differences uh, in the mm-hmm. country. Um, and that's since I spent a lot of my life trying to discover and, how to have such conversations and and have them in real settings when I consulted with organizations. Um, uh, it's very disappointing to, to, to see this tendency. Yeah. 
Now, one of the things that you touch on in the book, which I think is great, is that you, you talk about alternative ways of holding conversations. So explain some of those alternative ways and and where they best fit in certain types of conversations. Hmm. Right. Um, see how I can how I can say this best. Uh, Remember, we've got 50 minutes, so don't, right, don't right. feel like you have to give a soundbite answer. Now, let me let me start with a, a, a small structural theoretical thing, namely that in my view, the kind of science we all want to do is not only what I call third person science, which is the traditional objective research on lots and lots of people. But when we're in a situation, we need to do second person research. What's really happening in this meeting? Who's leading it? Are we talking about the important points? Is anyone free enough to be able to question how the meeting is going? Um, so there's that second person research. And then there's also first person research. And so I want to do research in action as well as uh, about the action on the outside. And I call it action inquiry, where you're doing both inquiry and action at the same time. So, um, you know, that was a big part of what I was trying to learn and what I was trying to teach our students um, is how, how can you have a, a conversation which raises all the important points and joins any conflict that's sort of under the rug right now um, and, and, and actually resolves it? Well, um, you know, one element, one way is to agree to begin with what the frame of our conversation is going to be, what the purpose of it is. Very few people do that at the beginning of a conversation. They take it for granted. And then there's a group in the room that feels left out by, by that frame. And so they're dragging the conversation the whole time. So learning how to frame a, a, a conversation that all the participants agree that that is what we ultimately want to do. Uh, and then, you know, some people are very good at advocating, um, making my own points, but it, and it's important to do so, but people often don't illustrate, and therefore the point remains vague. Uh, they don't give an example. Um, and so illustrating is important. And then finally... Well, but you, you make a great point when you say that, that they don't give an example. So give us an example of, of a situation, a meeting uh, that you've been in, uh, or that, that one of your, your clients has, has discussed with you, where you were able to go in and just by changing the action inquiry that all of a sudden everybody was able to come together because they now all could could see the same picture as opposed to everybody being more focused on, well, this is the way I want it presented or this is the way that that I see it or this is the you know, this is the point that I have to get across and they get so eye focused that they forget that you know, that right. a meeting is a we, it, it's a we decision. It's a we organization. Right. Uh, right. So it, it, give an example, because I think that, in, and hopefully with a lot of the teachers, I know a lot of the teachers that listen, they talk about the fact that they ask some of their students to, to listen to the show as well. Mm. So mm. I think that this might be a really good teaching mm. moment. Well, let's say, uh, for some reason, the, the example that's coming to mind may not be precisely what you're asking for, but um, okay. 
feels feels like the right one for me to try right now. So, um, so yes, I would often uh, consult with um, the senior team of an organization. And uh, one of the things I would do is have an interview with each of them um, in which I asked them all sorts of questions, including, um, is there anyone on the team that doesn't meet up to your expectations of competence? And then right after that question, I would ask, um, do you think there's anyone on the team for whom you do not um, appear competent and at the level they'd want? And so that really made them think a little bit. Um, and as I got to know this one senior management team, I saw that um, there was a lot of resentment toward one person in the team. Uh, a lot of the team felt that he was trying to be the favorite of the um, CEO. Um, mm -hmm. And um, so he always grabbed the lunch seat nearest the CEO uh, if they happened to be eating the same place. Um, and in fact, uh, this, this, uh, the, the reason why uh, the CEO seemed to favor him was because the CEO said, this guy has really important ideas and good ideas and new ideas. Um, so I learned from him and um, he's worth talking to. So we had a meeting in which uh, we um, shared all the data from my interviews. There were various kind, kinds of data, but one of them was how people thought about each other. And... Um, so we talked about the easier things to talk about for an hour, and then we had a break. And um, I said to this guy, I think um, I'm going to invite people to voluntarily share after this break about what they received, the feedback you've received, which I'd given all of them in exactly the way it was stated. I didn't say it wasn't a number from one to seven. Mm -hmm. It it was, um, you know, this guy is a real bastard or something. They, they, you know, they use bad language. And I just included it because it showed um, the quality of how people thought about him. And he was willing. So we went into the meeting and um, he taught, he described the feedback he'd received first mm -hmm. and um, what he thought about it and what he tried to do about it. And he asked people in the room uh, to help him and, and, this is when the CEO made clear why he actually liked him. And by the end of the meeting, um, his relationship to the whole group had fundamentally changed. And the other people in the group realized that, uh, that they could be doing things to increase their visibility to the CEO and just their, um, their, their, uh, their contribution to the company. So I don't know. Yeah, I was going to say it. You know, it, it sounds like by shining a light on it, he went from being a brown noser in their eyes to being a leader, right? And being vulnerable, yeah. voluntarily vulnerable, is a key element of that. Uh, it's a it's a key element of of being able to learn anything profound in any particular meeting because when a person vulnerably describes their experience. Um, it's much easier for people to leave, learn to hear than a person who's, who uh, says, we ought to be doing this, and I don't know why you all don't agree. Uh, that, that creates, obviously, some resistance. Um, but, of course, it's very difficult to do. Um, uh, another quick example here was when we were at SMU. At, at the beginning of one of our courses, one of my colleagues um, started to recite some statistics because of all of our research 
statistics on the previous cohort of 400 people. And it was clear after just a few moments that the 400 students who were now with us were losing interest. You could hear a little faint buzz of quiet conversation in the room. Um, and I thought, I've got to, this, this is not going to be good for us and for the course, uh, but it's going to be really embarrassing to, to in the first class of the, of the semester, confront my, uh, my colleague, my friend. Um, but I did. And um, I was so relieved. And then what he said to me took me by surprise. He said, okay, fine, Bill. I'll just finish this. I'm nearly at the end. And he went right back to doing more of the same thing. So then I was, I, I, I was again in a, in a quandary, but I realized after uh, 30 seconds that it was going to be no good if I, if I let it go. So I confronted him again in a stronger way and kept control and insisted we move to the next thing on the, on the, on the uh, agenda. And then the next week we had students write a paper about their experience in the course every week so that was another form of research. We had all 400 sets of experience that the different consultants to the groups would read and look at, and we would meet as a team. So by the beginning of the next class, we knew what the feelings in the previous session were. And two-thirds of the 400 students, without being asked to write about anything in particular, wrote about this incident, saying that they'd never seen anything like this before, where the leaders confront one another, and uh, it, made, it made it clear to them that this was going to be a different kind of course and, you know, a different kind of experience. So, all right. We are speaking with Dr. William R. Torbert, and we are talking about his book, Numbskull in the Theater of Inquiry, Transforming Self, Friends, Organizations, and Social Science. And we're going to take a break. We'll be right back, so don't go anywhere. You're listening to or watching Answers Network. Founded over 30 years ago to meet the needs of families in crisis, West Shield has continually focused on resolving issues that negatively impact families and businesses. Our signature therapeutic transportation service helps to ensure that adolescents in crisis are safely transported to specialized schools, programs, and treatment centers with unsurpassed experience and success. We are supported by our full-service licensed investigation agency that has legally, professionally, and compassionately located hundreds of runaways and teens. We are experienced and qualified to help, offering solutions which may include referrals to our international network of top professionals in the fields of educational consulting, psychology, psychiatry, and investigations. Simply put, West Shield Adolescent Services and West Shield Investigations are the best solutions when your family is facing a personal crisis. Call 1-800-899-8585, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's 1-800-899-8585, or visit our website at westshield.com. Thank you. And we're back. We are talking about leadership and transformation. And um, Bill, could you share share some of your assumption busting practices at work and play, and how they apply to transforming inquiry, power, and love? Mm -hmm. Well, um, this will lead me to introduce the developmental theory that has played such a big part in my life. Um, uh, so. Um, 
this theory uh, suggests that people, usually young children, start, I'm going to be very brief about this, but they start at what I call the opportunist stage, where it's all about them and getting their way they want. And even parents are treated as part of the outside world. You are responsible for driving me to my practice. How can you not do it? Um, And in early teenage years, they transform, and we'll talk about what that means, transform into diplomats. And diplomats are actually very responsive to the environment and their groups. Mm -hmm. They're learning that other people have minds, are not mere objects. Um, And indeed, the diplomat, as the word suggests, tends to become too accommodating. And in fact, their whole sense of themselves is based on whether other people like them or not. So um, whichever group they're with at the moment, they tend to agree with, which gets them into a lot of trouble eventually because they obviously disappoint somebody Uh each time. And in later teenage years, many people want want something better than that, a, a way of making decisions that is more consistent and gives them more of a direction. And they move into what we call the expert action logic, um, where, uh, you know, there is real truth and there is real evidence. And um, you want to learn things in order to be better positioned to act in the world. Uh, but at the same time, um, you're very structured. You're, 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 your skills are within a particular area. You're an accountant or a marketer or a sailboater or a ballet um, performer. And uh, you, you haven't really mastered um, how to get along in everyday life. In fact, the students coming out of college into the workplace are often tremendously depressed because there's none of the clarity that there was in college. Um, and there seemed to be politics at work by all things. Uh, well, there are politics at work, not only because people are bad and or politics is bad. There can be good politics, um, but um, but we don't know much about them. In fact, that's what I've been trying to learn and teach for all these years. Uh, so then they take maybe 10 years, say, in their 20s to move some of them uh, to the achiever action logic where um, you're more realistic. It's not just because you're right that this company ought to work this way. Um, it's because you're right and you've managed to persuade quite a number of people that this is the right way to go. So uh, re- realizing that perception is a, is, a, is a significant reality. It's not just hard, cold, objective facts. Now, that's usually the end of people's adult development. People in, traditionally weren't even thought, there wasn't even a theory of adult development. Uh, when I was at Harvard, I and several other people there, you know, started it in 1970. So it's a new idea. But beyond Achiever, uh, we have, we we get to the point where we say, you know, we must be able to have an influence on the structures around us and on the norms of meetings we're in. Um, And we're, and, and, and in terms of who we are, we, we, we must be able to redefine ourselves if we want to. So this we call the redefining action logic. Uh, a lot of people never go there, but this is the earlier action logics are convention constrained. They're, they're, they're working within already agreed upon norms in society. But at the later action logics, um, we become convention creative. We can 
we can help see and help other people to see that it'd be better if we reformed our norms or our structures in this organization at this time. And uh, then at the what we call the transforming action logic, you become capable of actually seeing when people need to transform from one action logic to another. You can create structures that help people go from diplomat to expert or from achiever to redefining. Um, now, I've gotten so far into this that I've lost track of, of what you asked me. <laughs> no, I think you actually covered it quite well. Um, it's um, And actually, we, we have another question that has come in from a listener. And I, I want to take this time, first of all, to thank those that take the time to send in questions and tell, you feel, and tell everybody out there, feel free to send in questions either for an upcoming guest uh, or for me. Uh, and if you, if you go to answers.network, you can send in your questions and we will do everything we can to get them on the air. Uh, this one reads, your title really piqued my interest. I'm very curious about your book and who the intended reader is. Uh, are, the, are the target readers academics or people interested in leadership training, in parentheses, such as myself, who are interested in improving their lives, their communities, and their businesses? And this is from Kyle in California. Well, hi, Kyle. Um, like this show itself, as I saw in the uh, early introductory uh, highlights about it, um, I like to think I'm writing for everyone, but of course, <laughs> of course, that's rarely the case that you get everyone as your audience. Um, and in fact, I am hoping that academics pay attention to this book because it is in one part an attack on academia and, uh, and a suggestion for a different way of doing research. But that isn't actually, most of that is packed into the appendices of the book. So you never need to look at that if you don't want to. What I'm known for over the past 40 years primarily is my contributions to leadership development. And this book is, again, an effort uh, to go in that direction. Um, and this developmental theory I've just been talking about is uh, one that we brought to uh, executives and organizations around the world. Uh, and um, um, I, found, I, I thought that in this book, I could communicate it by telling my own story of my own development. It didn't occur to me until relatively late in my career uh, that I not only students could write their autobiographies and see how they related to these developmental stages, but even I could. So I started doing it. And lo and behold, I learned a lot about myself by seeing that um, some of my earliest actions, um, which I was embarrassed about and even ashamed about, were kind of natural fits for the action logics I would be in in those mm -hmm. stages, opportunist and diplomat primarily. Um, and that, that helped me accept myself more and realize I was no longer uh, captured by that framework, that worldview, um, and uh, that it was pretty natural to go through a time like that, such as stealing money from my parents' uh, pocketbooks and um, uh, for quite a while, and then, then finally confessing because I didn't think I could live with myself, and then stealing again. Uh, <laughs> so um, those those incidents appear in a somewhat different light when uh, developmental theory is applied to them. 
Well, and it's one of the things that that I, I appreciated in the book was you showed a lot of vulnerability. Um, and and I think for anybody reading it, you know, none of us are perfect. And uh, but yet I've read many books uh, where I come away thinking that well, maybe I haven't done enough, you know, that, <laughs> you know, that I thought I was doing pretty good. But wow, that guy never made a mistake or that girl never made a mistake or anything. And uh, so, so I felt very comfortable in the fact that, you know, the, it showed vulnerabilities and we all, we all have made mistakes and you share those, but I think it, it helps for anybody reading it. And especially for a, a younger person to be able to go, Hey, I've done some of those things, but look, you know, he's now achieved all of these things. So I can get past all of this and I can still reach for the sky. And that was kind of the feeling that I got from the book, which I thought was very uplifting. Well, that's wonderful. That, that is definitely one of the intents. And having the later action logics does give a kind of pathway uh, 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 where you change qualitatively as you continue to grow older um, and you come closer and closer uh, to being able to do some of what you want. But you're never perfect because um, every new situation uh is a situation in which you have not acted before. And so you're only going to succeed if you come in realizing you don't know. Mm -hmm. um, you don't know exactly for sure how to act in this situation. I'm trying to figure out how to act in this one just as I'm in the midst of doing it. I have never been in quite this situation before. And so having that, developing that capacity to be aware uh, enough to be able to check yourself and do something different in the midst uh, of a process is, is one of the key learnings that I hope to share uh, in the book. Well, uh, and one of the things I want to touch on, and we've got about seven minutes. Um, so share with us what you mean uh, when you say society benefits, if we all realize our faults and deal with them instead of blaming our faults on others, this is one of my pet peeves. Mm -hmm. uh, so I would love to have you share some of the information uh, that you've learned in regards to this and some of which is shared in the book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's a big, uh, a big topic. Let me see if I can. Um, uh, maybe, maybe I'll, I'll try um, a sort of surprising example. <laughs> I'm not sure if it'll work, but. Uh, I, I tell several stories in the book about my four years at Harvard. And I really, this was as a faculty member, after I'd been at SMU, which I talked about a little earlier, um, and at Yale for undergraduate and graduate, I already had a bias against Harvard because we played Harvard in soccer and we lost too many times. And I, I thought they were stuck up. Anybody from Yale thinks they're really better than Harvard because everybody thinks Harvard's the best. So... Um, I probably had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder when I went to be on the faculty there, but I was very disappointed uh, with the fact that the faculty as a whole didn't seem to be willing to talk together um, about um, creating a better school. And now I was very young and had a lowly position, didn't have tenure, but it was the first organization I'd, I'd um, joined that where the senior parts of the organization didn't have any interest in the kind of development that I thought was possible. 
eventually uh, I got an invitation to speak at the Philosophy and Aesthetics Colloquium. And I thought, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to put it all out there at this meeting. And it's not just going to be an intellectual experience. It's going to be an experience where I really confront uh, the philosophers about how they do philosophy and why they don't do practical philosophy and why they aren't getting knowledge that's useful to timely action, which is my ultimate belief in what we ought to be prepared for. So I went in and started talking about different philosophers and um, what they had to say about action. And um, uh, there were about 12 faculty members present for this colloquium around the table. And then, to everybody's surprise, there were about 30 or 35 graduate students that had seen some mention of this and decided to show up. I don't think this colloquium had ever had any graduate students show up for their topics. Well, about um, halfway through, uh, as we were discussing, because I was encouraging conversation, I slowly got up on the seminar table and stood on my head. Well, um, and we continued the conversation, but uh, then I got down. Um, I was very graceful. We were we were we were uh, taping this, and I got to see myself doing it later. I was very impressed. <laughs> but <laughs> but suddenly the faculty started whispering to one another, and um, one of the faculty said. Um, uh, you're taping this event. I'd said at the introduction that we were taping it as a symbol of consciousness. So if they saw this uh, cameraman walking around, they ought to try to become more conscious. And um, I said, and also you ought to try to become more conscious of your body. We ought to live with a continuing awareness of our bodies. So to symbolize that, uh, just wiggle your hand a little bit. Well, the philosophers never wiggled their hands. This was too embarrassing. All of the graduate students wiggled their hands and then later wiggled them some more. And then suddenly, the um, two or three of the philosophy professors left the room, walked out. And uh, then one of them came back in and talked to two or three more, and they walked out. And finally, they came and got the senior professor who had his head down but had not left. And they almost bodily lifted him out of his chair and took him out. And uh, none of us who were left had a, really couldn't explain. I mean, obviously, they were made uneasy. Um, I didn't finish the little story about the, the, prof the guy got up and pulled the plug out of the wall on, on the video. He said, you know, you didn't get our permission to do this. And I said, that's, that's true, because we were just doing it as a symbol of what could be going on right now. And that, that upset him. Um, uh, in another moment, a graduate student went and plugged the thing back in and said, um, your movement of unplugging was just as authoritarian as, uh, or more so than not asking for permission to have the video there to begin with. So they all left. We talked a little bit. We couldn't figure anything out. I said, well, let me just go out myself and see if I can find one or two of them somewhere here. And I walked out and went to the elevator and there they were, all of them in a heated conversation with one another. And I said, um, you know, can you tell me exactly what is, what your concerns are? And they looked at me stonily um, rejecting. And I, I tried a couple of times. 
um, and got nothing and then said, well, I think I need to go back to the people who stayed. <laughs> so we, uh, we finished the session and agreed that we would watch it because there was obviously something to be learned from it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then about 15 minutes later, a student came to me and said, I know, I know what they were upset about because I was walking up the stairs behind several of them. And uh, she said, uh, their concern is that they will lose their grant, um, their money uh, from the National Science Foundation because Senator Proxmire, who was a Wisconsin senator at that time, every week he would get up in the Senate and, and make a Golden Fleece Award for a research project that was ridiculous in his mind. Um, you know, he believed the National Science Foundation wasted money. So they were afraid that this thing of me standing on my head um, on the table in the seminar uh, would get to him and he would <laughs> embarrass the school. He would embarrass the school, embarrass them and lead yeah. to the withdrawing of their money. So in the end, we didn't do anything to embarrass them any further. But um Again, I forget what the question was by now. <laughs> well, let, let, let me let me throw another question, and this one's is is coming in as well. Okay, great. And but unfortunately, we've only got about a minute. But um, it says it says my husband has been a county commissioner for several years. Recently, he has expressed great frustration in dealing with the other members of the board, who he feels are more interested in in lauding power over the people than actually serving their interests. Would your book be one that might give him some guidance on how to work with and uh, and communicate more effectively with this type of group? This is from Haley in Utah. And what I'd like to say is, is if you have a short answer, give us that now, which might be, yes, the book would be perfect. Hmm. If there's something that's longer, um, if you could post it uh, or if you send it to us, we'll post it on the website and people can go to get a more detailed answer. Well, I'll just answer very short and then the book can be the detailed answer. There you uh, go. Uh, the later action logics that I was just talking about are where people discover that mutual power is more effective and more powerful than unilateral power. Most people don't know anything about mutual power. And this book tries to give many, many examples of um, what that entails. Thank you, Haley, for the question. Yeah. And Bill, thank you, uh, not just for writing the book, but for coming on, for talking about it. Um, and and I think this is the type of thing that I would love to see in, uh, you know, in high schools, in junior high schools, in colleges, um, where people can learn more about how to collaborate. It's interesting that I, I look back and I see that, you know, starting in about the 80s, uh, civics was something that's slowly been taken out of our schools, mm. um, you know, a, as if there seems to be some reason that they don't want people to have enough knowledge in this area to be able to argue with them. So, I, I, you know, so to me, someone like yourself who's putting out a book like this that is telling people, yes, speak up, you, you know, show some leadership. Um, you know, these are the types of things I think we need to to have out there for people to, you know, turn things around a little bit and 
and be able to acknowledge that we all have a lot of very valuable information to put out there. We just need to be able to figure out how we can all listen to each other uh, in a way that is not divisive. Well, thank you, Alan, for a great leading questions. I appreciate <laughs> being able to join you and your audience. Well, you're very welcome. And again, so uh, in, in regards to the book, uh, any best places to get it or just well, wherever books are be, Well, it, it is not in bookstores. You have to go to Amazon, unfortunately, but okay. um, they're the ones that have it. Okay. So, uh, you know, go to Amazon. Uh, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, is there a, a best way to do that? Well, um, my email is torbert, T-O-R-B-E-R-T, at bc dot edu. All right. Well, Bill, thank you so much. My pleasure. All right. For everybody out there, be with us next week when we're joined by author Dr. Thomas Verney. Uh, and in our interview, he will share details of his new book, uh, uh, the Embodied Mind, Understanding the Mysteries of Cellular Memory, Consciousness, and Our Bodies. So look forward to that one. Uh, and please, if for everybody out there, visit our archives of past interviews at answers.network or just subscribe to the sh show through Apple uh, um, uh, Apple Podcast, iHeartRadio, Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, Rumble, Spreaker, and so many others. If you like what you hear, please leave a review and know that we greatly appreciate uh, whatever feedback you can give us. And the next time you're on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, remember to stop by our page, check out some of our latest shows. If you like them, please like us and spread the word. For everybody out there, be good human beings and be with us again next week on Answers Network. You're listening to Answers Network with Alan Cardoza, only on L.A. Talk Radio.